Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and today I'm here with Matt, and I'm here with John, and uh, we are discussing then the idea of resurrection, but also in this a kind of depiction of the problem of a dualism or of an apparent dualism and the overcoming of the dualism. That is, how do you overcome this thing? Again, what we might mean, the practical no. implications of resurrection. Okay. Because so no matter how, if you want to, you know, describe dualism in any of the ways that we've talked about it so far, uh, and we'll start with Paul, how does resurrection overcome dualism? The division then is one that is between ultimately death and life, that it is a false dualism. And death then is the category that is connected as a kind of reified, you know, absolute. And you can connect this then with worldly powers, thrones and principalities, that they're all dealing in death. And they're taking up, in other words, this is the the conversation about Paul's depiction of the letter that kills and the spirit that gives life. It's not that we're doing away with the Old Testament or doing away with the letter of the law or that we're doing away with human language, but all of those are vivified in a way through the spirit. And the spirit then is pervasive in this discussion because the spirit is that part of the Trinity, one of the persons of God, that's hardest for us to to separate out. But I think it's not because the spirit is removed from us, but because there is this practical life that's been made available to us in and through the resurrection. You know, you think about the life of Christ, that the spirit is there in every stage. through the birth and at the baptism, and of course, particularly in and through the the resurrection, and then our participation in the resurrection. The resurrection then undoes the orientation to death. It undoes the sense of a dualism, if you want to put it in that language. And we have peace. You know, that's the, the language is that alienation is undone and that we now have life and peace. And so resurrection overcomes the power of death that is dualistic, that is to take that principle of the flesh as a kind of end in and of itself. And I think that this then gets at at least our participation. Of course, resurrection is the fulfillment of, if we think of it in terms of a uh, creation and the, the completion of creation, that no longer then does nothingness, if we think in terms of futility or suffering, ending in death, that those things are no longer going to be the reigning principles in our life. Not that suffering is undone, but the power of this futility to order our lives is undone in the resurrection of Christ. John, how about for you? How does resurrection overcome dualism? So I think that uh, resurrection ultimately being how we're saved from death, also being the because of sin and death, not necessarily, you know, not of necessity, but because of sin and death, resurrection is God's solution to reuniting us with himself, allowing us to participate and partake in the divine nature. And so there's a way in which then, uh, to use a metaphor from Irenaeus, 
in which the work of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit are the two hands of God in the world guiding us to this friendship with God or, uh, you know, our proper end in some way. And if the problem with dualism is always that, in some sense, that we would take a nothing and make it the opposite something to whatever is the good or the true, the way that's ultimately cast out uh, is by, or the way that you realize that these dualisms are false, is ultimately by the, a picture of the whole, the point of creation, creation coming to its fruition, which I think is consistent with Hart's picture that we're becoming less mutable. Uh, we become free. We choose God. We meet our proper end. We have our desire for our supernatural end is met in God. All these are ways of explaining how our relationship with God or all of creation's relation to God in some way becomes full, whole, complete. And when that's complete, then there's really no room for the opposite or the negative of, of whatever that goodness would be. Yeah, and so I don't know if this is a, a transition to maybe what would be part three. John, you touched on it a little bit uh, just a second ago, but why is the subject then of grace and freedom relevant to how resurrection overcomes dualism? What your options are, or what have been historic Christian options for thinking about grace and freedom, all cohere or to have the context of what do Christians think about the world, or what do Christians think about uh, what it means to be a human. So you have, on the one hand, you know, everything's basically okay. Uh, this is Pelagius's view. Adam's a bad example for us, but we're born in some kind of original grace, original righteousness, and all we have to do is to grow into that, and then we're fully what a human being ought to be. Well, I think all of Christianity has basically rejected that view, and rightly so. But on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, Calvin or people like Calvin think that in some way the world is, you know, totally fallen. So even human knowledge isn't sufficient to know God. What it means to be human, we're not capable of doing good things. We're not capable of participating in God. And so in some way, God's response to this was a movement of grace that gifts to us the eternal life of Jesus, but it's not in any way infused in our lives. And so to me, I would think you were left with a dualism there. And Pelagius's view, uh, I don't know where the dualism would be, but it's almost uh, the problem there is that uh, there is no problem when there actually is one, <laughs> right? So it would just be like, how do you actually hold to Pelagius's view in light of the world as it stands? But anyway, in Calvin's view, the dualism is much more obvious, or there's this obvious dualism. Human uh, will is not free because everything is determined. If it was, uh, we can't do good things, we can't actually cause, uh, we can't participate in righteousness in any way. So the world is cut off from God in a dualistic sense. And then there's a whole host of options in the middle. But what we say about grace and freedom then directly participates or directly comes to bear on, at least the way I was thinking of salvation as being an answer to dualism, is in some way what we want to be saying, if we can overcome dualism, is that God in his wisdom has chosen to save the world, even a world that is distinct from himself, in such a way that uses the forms of that world so that God comes to us as a person. Apparently, you know, there's, there's not a, a problem with that. Uh, we're not totally cut off from God or something along those lines. But at the same time, we recognize that because it is grace, it is totally a gift. 
But what's happening then, once we realize that uh, a way of describing what I've just said actually is just that we have a, a natural desire for a supernatural end. One could think of that as, I guess, being the provisional dualism. There, there are these two orders, but they're not disconnected. And that's the way they often get taken. Uh, and I think that's Paul's fear, too, I think, is what he was articulating earlier, that there's, there could be this problem that we would think, and somehow, like, this natural realm is complete or isn't dependent upon God. Um, and so there's a natural end to what it means to be human, or there's a natural end to human knowledge. Well, I think that would be less than Christian, because what we're saying really is that God's grace works such that we as human beings, who uh, we could describe this natural realm, we have intelligibility within that natural realm, we can make decisions, our wills operate in that natural realm, but in no way can that affect for us our supernatural end, which ultimately is what it means to be human, is to come to that supernatural end, and we see that demonstrated in Christ. So in as much as uh, a conversation about grace and freedom gets all that right and understands that what's happening through grace is we're being brought through our own cooperation uh, by an act of God, an operation upon ourselves that uh, takes shape within us to our supernatural end, what is being reiterated then is the picture of salvation or the picture of uh, God's plan, the economy of God, or what's going on, what God is up to in creation is to bring us all to a whole. There's, there's ultimately not going to be an uh, absolute dualism between what it means to be human and what it means to be God. We will become like God in every way as finite human beings can. That's good. How about, how about for you, Paul? How does uh, grace and freedom figure into your uh, notion of how resurrection overcomes dualism? Yeah, I think that you know, what you're getting is a redefinition of freedom under and under, well, in Christianity, but certainly in resurrection. And so when we talk about freedom, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave, what we're really thinking about is people that are willing to kill others, to deal in death, to gain freedom. And so this world's freedom is always death-dealing and enslaving to obtain it. This world's peace is always a warmongering, violent peace. And so the freedom is, of course, to be free in the sense that we are becoming what God created us to be. And part of what that means is we make a departure. We're free from that dualistic, binary, violent understanding of identity through difference in which we need to kill the other to establish our, our own self or freedom. And so that once you get freedom straight, that, there, that Christian freedom is not synonymous with American freedom or with any freedom that this world could imagine, you know, freedom of choice or all the variations on freedom. But freedom is a very particular thing. I think it is the freedom that gives us peace and love and joy. That is, it, that it is that freedom that we have in God to be who we were created to be. And so resurrection is entry into this alternative reality, in a sense, an alternative kingdom in which there is no interplay with death. And I'll just mention here in passing, I'll get, I want to get John's reaction. Part of this that Campbell points to 
is that we tend to think of the intermediate state of the dead as a realm that can in its own right, you know, especially in teaching, I always ran into this, that in some way the intermediate state of the dead or future categories, as in infernalism, you know, a hell, that those things come to bear such weight for many Christians that they're operating in a practical dualism. And I liked Campbell's depiction then in which the intermediate state or those categories are in fact then not given room in the sense, you know, what we we can think of death and always that separation of the body from the soul. Well, that means that in some way resurrection was not successful or is not immediate successful. Does it mean that we're put to sleep? And well, then again, resurrection is not an immediate In other words, the danger is that if we don't recognize the language of Paul, absent from the body at home with with the Lord, what that must mean in Paul's experiential description is that there is no intermediate realm in which a dualism can come in. In Our previous discussion about the harrowing of hell is what Campbell is describing is, well, actually the realm the category of Hades is no longer a category open to consideration given the resurrection. Wow. Is Campbell, is Campbell open to uh, universalism, or, or, or do you guys not know? I asked him that specifically, and he, he is. What he would say, he would nuance that and say that Paul may not have been a universalist. In other words, he's not saying that Paul at all times and all places is teaching this. So it may be he's open to a universalism, but perhaps not on the dogmatic order of David Bentley Hart. Fair enough. Yeah. And and this question may be too big, but John, what have Christians traditionally thought about grace and freedom? Oh, well, I mean, that's that's your whole host of answers, right? So you get Pelagius and then Augustine's response. You get John Cashin. My approach comes from understandings of Aquinas and the, that it's relational that basic. So what you have to, under, well, what I think you should have to understand to be able to have an intelligent conversation about grace and freedom is what's known as the theorem of the supernatural, which was developed by Philip the Chancellor in, uh, I guess, what would it be? 12th century France. And this is a major breakthrough that allows for Aquinas's work and others in the 13th century. So in the 13th century, University of Paris, you've got like this beautiful flowering of theology, right? Uh, Albert the Great, Aquinas, uh, Bonaventure's there with him as well. I mean, it's just a, it's a lovely time. But a lot of that stems back to this breakthrough of the notion of the theorem of the supernatural. Which is to say that when we talk about human will and whatever God might will, we're not talking about willing on the same order, such that, you know, as humans, we will things here and now, but we don't set ends for ourselves or we don't, um, you know, we don't set the conditions of our lives. Uh, It's not as if we, we have any kind of freedom in the sense of creation or what creation looks like or uh, when we're born or anything like that. There's an operation of the will that's taking place on a supernatural order that is intelligible to God, 
and not to us. And then there's the willing that we do on in the natural order that's intelligible to us. But the relation that God is establishing between himself and humanity, which is a created relation, right? Because God's not dependent upon the existence of the cosmos or upon humans for who he is in and of himself. But in some way, that created relationship is one of love, and it's one that allows us to have um, a natural desire, so a willing or a desiring that operates along that natural order for a supernatural end that God sets. So that's once you say all that, then that's how you're able to talk about operative and cooperative grace. So people will then reject that picture in the late Middle Ages, you know, 100 years later, and, uh, well, not even, yeah, I guess 100 years later, and then in the Reformation as well, because what they'll do is they'll collapse uh, what it means for God to will and what it means for humans to will onto the, you know, they'll make it all the same in some sense, that God's, God operates as a discrete being in the universe, so that if God wills something, uh, then there's and God's all-powerful, then human will has no place. Uh, or vice versa. If humans could make a decision and will something, then God couldn't be a part of whatever action that was. And that would directly go against the theorem of the supernatural. Yeah. And I like, Paul, what you were, you know, it really crystallizes it. You know, uh, when we talk about dualism, it's like, well, how do we do dualism? You know, we can do it in any number of ways, but uh, male and female. You know, black and white, master and slave, Jew and Gentile, right? Uh, and that we would do this identity through difference. And, and I like the way that it really crystallizes it for me when you talked about the way that the resurrection overcomes that is through peace, because how we would normally have those relationships is in and through a sort of violent uh, relationship, right? That um, that whatever it would be, the rich and the poor, the blacks and whites and males and females, master and slaves, all that stuff would be normally characterized then. Uh, with this sort of violent antipathy that, that remains between the two, Paul, how does how does resurrection set us free? Other than other than what you've already said, how does resurrection set us free from dualism? And then we'll give John the last word on it. Well, the categories that you named—you know, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female—those are Paul's depiction in Galatians of what is undone in Christ. I think that you can just refer to those as fleshly arrangements that those are the way that we would order the world. in not to say that those aren't true things. Oh, we are slaves and free. We are male and female. All of those are true. But of course, they become a falsehood when they become a mode of identity. And I think what resurrection does then, it takes us out of one mode of doing identity, one way of perceiving and comprehending. And it gives us a rearrangement of those things. Those, in a sense, then become provisional in Paul's language. In Corinthians, he's going to say, those of you who are married, you know, you're going to act as if you're no longer married. Those of you That's who good. are in a particular circumstance do not act as if that's... In other words, what he's saying is the circumstance is no longer binding in the sense of doing identity. And so we may be in those circumstances, and those things may be a reality, but that realm of the flesh no longer binds us in the way that it once did, because now all of those things take their proper place, not as primary realms, but as secondary, 
in light of doing identity in Christ and in the resurrection in which those things are overcome. All right, John. So it's the bottom of the ninth. You're down by three. The are loaded. The three-two count. Games on the line. How does the resurrection set us free from dualism? Yeah, I, I think the word "free" there may be important, and I just you know think in terms of like Maximus or uh, Gregory of Nyssa, but this idea that freedom or true freedom. This Paul was saying this just a moment ago, uh, but true freedom isn't the ability to choose between discrete things, but rather true freedom is to choose the good, to choose God. And in as much as we grow into God, who is, you know, uh, say the good, the beautiful, the true, God is simple, God is perfect, God is one, we're free to choose God, we're free to choose the one, we are necessarily not uh, operating in terms of dualisms any longer. I don't think that what Paul wants to say is that there's two, you know, ways of knowing because then, of course, you just set up a whole nother dualist. In other words, yeah, the, if you had to say in the New Testament, there's a way of knowing in which you have Jews, Gentiles, male, female, slave free as a kind of identity through difference. It's not that those realms are untrue or that knowing those things aren't the case, but it's doing those things as a kind of uh, realm of, you know, that is the mode of understanding and doing identity. So what, you know, maybe it's a semantic difference to say, well, it's not that, you know, oh, we know differently in that now we, we know there aren't men and women. No, it's not that. It's just that those categories are no longer primary or an end in and of themselves. The question that I'm concerned with is, is the way that we come to know things, so is the way that we come to know, uh, I don't know, just pick something, the same way or the same operation as the way we come to know Jesus? There's a whole theological movement that just says, no, those aren't the same. And I was trying to ask you, where you stood on that. I mean, that's, you realize like the whole post-liberal thing would say, no, that's not the same. Karl Barth says those are not the same. You know, in one sense, when Douglas Campbell talks about being anti-foundationalist, it's like, I get it. Like he's saying, well, you can't say, uh, we wouldn't want to say, well, Jesus has revealed A to be true, but our common sense tells us that that can't really be true which would be a form of foundationalism that, okay, yeah, we, we'll reject that, that's fine. But at the same time, uh, if what he means is that our way of no, there's no foundational categories in our way of knowing that um, are useful for coming to know God, well, I don't buy that. I mean, I just don't even think we can, and I don't think he does either because he starts to quote Calcida. So here's an example of that. What are the foundational categories at work when they come up with the Chalcedonian definition? Let me tell you, they don't all come from Scripture. Uh, there's no encounter with Jesus that's going to get you to the place where you can start differentiating between uh, substance and nature and person. So those foundational categories are coming from Greek philosophy, and I want to say that's true, and that's good, and that's right that they did that. And there's a type of anti-foundationalism that could, cannot say that's good so you want to say that there's the two there's no difference in knowing 
Well, I mean, sometimes we get things wrong. We're humans, right? So I'm saying there is such a thing as impaired knowing, but um, the way knowing works is the same. Gregory, you know, these guys aren't actually at the Council of Chalcedon, but it's their their work. So that you've got like Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nanzianzus, uh, Basil the Great, and they're doing all of this theology. They're definitely using the foundational categories of Greek philosophy to be able to explore questions about their faith. And I think they come out with right answers. And most people think that too, because that's what's been considered orthodoxy for the last 1600 years or so. So then to say, well, that's all bad. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't, why would we say that? Which is, which is certainly not what I was saying. Then again, there's, you know, modern philosophy that gives us foundational categories that don't work very well for Christianity. But how do we discern between which ones work well and which one don't? Uh, philosophical investigation is a lot of what we're doing. So what are we doing when we're doing that? We're using foundational categories that are found in human ways of knowing that weren't given to us by revelation. I think that in God's wisdom, he has chosen to save us by using those things. But you realize like Karl Barth may not be saying that. It's interesting that they, these guys oftentimes will still affirm most of the, you know, the creedal doctrines, but they are saying that, well, philosophy can't serve as that sort of foundation. Well, hold on a second. It did in the fourth century and you agree with the, the fruit of those investigations, why are we going to say that whole project is wrong just because the foundational categories of the 19th century suck? That would That's one way of putting it, I guess. Yeah, I don't know that I'm disagreeing with you, but uh, in other words, do we want to always and forever stick with the formulas, or do we in fact want to restate them in a way that are culturally and linguistically uh, relevant to the present, so that to imagine that we can st establish some sort of permanent foundation of knowing in and through a philosophical understanding, I think is already maybe to misunderstand the way that human knowing and human language and human culture works. Okay, well, that's not, that's not what I said, Paul. What I said was, there's a way of knowing that includes foundational categories, the way we should investigate our ways of knowing is through the foundational categories that we have by engaging our experience of coming to know things. But what happened, so we all agree with the doctrines they came up with in the 4th century or the 5th century. The way they came up with those doctrines was by engaging foundational categories of the philosophy of their day. I'm not afraid of us doing that today. What I'm saying is perhaps problematic is the people who say we shouldn't engage those foundational categories of knowledge at all right. because we have revelation. Right. And that right. somehow is on. Right, right. Yeah. I think. Which, I mean, you and your own work are doing this, right? Like you turn to psychoanalysis and say, hey, there's good stuff here. Right, right. To get beyond the semantics to a real disagreement or, or agreement, it may be interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, Matt may want to, to chime in here. Because I would think that, in fact, what is happening in the split between East and West is pre precisely over the deployment of philosophical categories. The East and West share the ecumenical councils. That's why they're ecumenical. As the various councils move into definitions of the inner workings of the Trinity, 
that the Eastern Church is going to say uh, they're they're going. I to mean, say. the council. It is true that the Council of Toledo, the Fourth Council of Toledo, where the Filioque comes up, is uh, earlier than a thousand. But it's not a problem until a pope decides he's going to use, he's going to make that standard in the West without consulting the East. So, like, I think, you know, the Eastern Fathers, they can admire the fact that in, in Spain, where the Council of Toledo was held, what was going on was the Filioque was used to suppress a form of Arianism. Okay, everybody's fine with that. But what happens when one bishop, the Bishop of Rome, decides he's going to unilaterally change the creed? What kind of authority is he claiming? And that's where the problem comes in. And the fact that the Romans sack Constantinople. That's a good way to win an argument. <laughs> uh, but, you know, those issues, it's, I, almost, I, I do wonder how much of that is like 20th century reading backwards. Because take Solovia, for example, when he first starts encountering Western philosophy, as an Orthodox priest and theologian, he doesn't think, oh, this is somehow, I can't be Orthodox and engage this stuff. Um, it is always over particular issues and issues of identity, it would seem. So you have Orthodox scholars recognizing that what Aquinas is doing with Augustine, Pseudo-Dionysius, and Aristotle is legitimate and not, uh, you know, not totally foreign to the way Orthodox think either. So context plays a huge... I mean, with that being said, though, I think that, you know, there's definitely seems to be, uh, I mean, and John, I'm sure I would, it's probably going to be better at this than me, but the development, though, of philosophy in the West looks a bit different then, right, than in the, philosoph the philosophy of the East because of... For instance, now, you do um, have Orthodox who would say exactly what you just said, Matt. A lot of modern-day Orthodox, that's the answer you hear, right? Oh, well, the West, they got scholastic and we didn't. I don't know how true that is historically. You know, orthodoxy changes in the 20th century makes a drastic change in the focus of how orthodox theology works with a neo-patristic synthesis. John Baer has a lovely uh, essay and talk on this. Why don't we come up with, I think today in our conversation, we have some questions we could direct at Douglas Campbell. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. How is he walking this line uh, between luther and hart and agreeing somewhat with hart but i mean hart's not a, gonna agree with the whole lutheran thing so so our last one what's the last one theosis the last map okay nice why is that one why is that mine? i'm the furthest away from theosis than either of you oh that's not true i mean that's the thing it's like well i don't know maybe theosis is our unity uh you know the unity of our spirit with the spirit of god you know that isn't that what it is does our mm -hmm. flesh and blood impede that? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Like, this whole 20th century thing. I always think it's funny, Paul. I remember in class, you would you would say things like, well, we might be the only person saying this. But actually, a lot of these moves are pretty common in the 20th century. Like, uh, in the 20th century, people hate Anselm. In the 20th century, people decide that uh, everything bad is Gnosticism and somehow everything has to be physical. Like, those are all moves that, are, well, probably just since 1950. I, I kind of wonder about, like, the whole, where does this conversation arise from? Uh, and I don't have the I answer. will say there does seem to be a sort of uh, a recovery right now, a reconstruction of Anselm. I keep seeing it all every Yeah, I, I, I've just never been interested. I, I think I read him, and I think I understand him. 
If you want to, yeah. if you want right. to save him, okay. But well, you don't have to save him. He's a monk. He's way better than all of us. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I meant yeah. No, no. Clearly, he's a fine individual. <laughs> no, I mean his writing is probably way. You know. I would suggest uh, calling out to him in prayer. <laughs> and he'll give us a private language in which we could communicate, maybe. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, I probably what I meant in class was that I, you know, I was developing all of that over and against our immediate surroundings. That's definitely true. Of course, our immediate surrounding was stuck um, in the 19th century, so... <laughs> <laughs> I remember that was one of the the, the yeah. highest I I ever yeah. saw. I wish I could go back now and put myself in the classroom because I I would probably hear it a lot differently. But I remember thinking like I mean Paul was like it was, almost seemed like he was a bit manic. Like he was doing this you know this talk on Anselm, and all I can remember is he was talking about you know I think it was the ontological argument and how. And it was like how Anselm's crossing the ontological divide. Yeah. And I mean, he was just soaring to heights. I mean, where it was like, you could tell, man, he was like, um, he was like Michael Jordan in game seven. Like he was just on fire. You know Anselm's I mean? probably not going to answer his prayers. <laughs> he may be pouting. Yeah. Well, don't worry, Paul. He's in the realm of spirit now, beholding uh, God in his yeah. uncreated. You know, I think he's life. in his resurrection body. Yeah, it's a spiritual body. That's what Matt means. And this is uh, uh, Matt. You didn't get to read Campbell, but yeah. this is what Campbell is saying: is that our whole depiction of awaiting, waiting on the resurrection, is a kind of time-space, you know, linear understanding that we don't yeah. need to be bound by. Which my point would be like, well, yeah, Doug, hell got harrowed. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about this. It's like. Well, you know, even in Ephesians 1, right? It's like, well, we've been granted, you know, every blessing in the spiritual places. And it's like, it's already happened. It's like, and so from God's perspective, right? Like, we're already, yeah. like, we're well, united. Matt, Matt, shoot, you got to go through a bunch of toll houses to get to where you're going. Yeah, no, that is, it's, it's, it's an annoying. Unless you guys are going to say something uh, really. We were bantering. Uh, oh, sorry. We were bantering. The only toll house I like, John, or is, is the ones just from the Keebler Elves. The toll house? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> cookies. We like cookies. Yes, those are my favorites. Yes. Yeah. It's it a really deliverance is. to heaven. Feel free to um, use all of that stuff. I don't know if it pertains at all. But like, I'm trying to checkmate Paul on his own show. It keeps happening over and over to Paul, right? It just keeps happening over and over again. Where his, you know, his beloved student just keeps rising up and then, you know, shaking their fist in his face. He's like, I gave you everything, and now you want to, you know, you're standing there, uh, you know, shaking your fist at the skies and calling me names. Uh, no, I'm used to my students rising up. Rebelling against you? This might be something to take up with Campbell. He references an article by Hauerwas, who makes the case that, in other words, in saying it's a human institution, it is a step away from somebody who might say, oh, the church is a continuation of the incarnation. Clearly, we can't say it's, that. It's the mystical body of Christ. The fallibility of humanity has infected the, uh, the structures and forms. And so you have to be able to talk about authentic developments and then decline. I mean, inauthentic developments, progress and decline. In other words, you can say all of that, 
you can acknowledge the 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 role of of the church say what you've always been saying to us uh, about the numbers of protestants the numbers you know the divisions and so what are we to do about that and i think that what we're to do is to find the church yeah no you guys are you guys are the incarnation you guys have many many times been the incarnation even today of christ in my life so thank you for that well, you're the only one with an institution. <laughs> We're just a part of the the living body of Christ. <laughs> uh, every time, every yeah, <laughs> take that. <laughs> oh, I sure failed in that. Thank you for listening to this have, episode yeah, of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.